This is They Create Worlds, episode 111. Jumping to it. One, two, three, four. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be. A land that's called reality. You'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We've been hopping through a lot of hoops, and there's a lot of people probably jumping through a lot of hoops lately. So we're going to start going through all the platformers that ever existed and trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B. This is not going to be a 20-episode arc, Jeff. I think we better narrow it down a little bit. Oh, fine. If we want to narrow it down a little bit, what will be our first platform that we have to, you know, jump to? Well, I mean, we're going to do an overview of the platform genre up to the advent of the 3D era and not really get too far past that because, again, we don't want this to be a 20-part episode, but kind of taking a look at how the platform game developed, how it was shaped, and how it came to really dominate the video game industry. And they still do dominate the video game industry to a large degree today. Maybe not quite as much as they did back in the day, but most AAA games that have a person in them, as opposed to a spaceship or something, still rely very heavily on platform mechanics, even when there are other things going on as well. So it really has become one of the central ways of expressing action in the video game medium. And so kind of trying to analyze why that happened and what some of the milestone games were on the way uh, in this whole journey. Like jump, double jump. Triple jump, jump monkeys, jump frenzy. Ooh, my. But platform games didn't start with jumping, you know. They didn't. They started with platforms. Oh, right. Because they don't call them jumping games. Now, sometimes people call them run and jumps or include jumping in there in some way, but they don't call them jumping games. They call them platformers, and that implies that the key component here is not the jump, even though, as we'll see, the jump became a key part of that very, very quickly. But that title implies that the key portion of this is actually a platform, a suspended something or another that a person can stand on and and move from place to place. I certainly remember that with some of the early games I played as a kid. I remember playing Wrecking Crew, which I cannot jump between the various platforms, but I can walk and climb ladders to various platforms. And then the challenge of that game is to try and come up with How can I destroy everything in a manner where I don't either soft lock myself or make it extremely difficult to win? Right. And of course, Load Runner is another one where it's not about the jumping. It's about the moving around at at differing heights. You know, as we'll see, the jump very quickly becomes a part of things. But it starts with the platforms. But even before it starts with the platforms, it starts with a little game called Space Invaders. Wait, Space Invaders didn't have any platforming in it. I was down at the bottom, and I shoot up. That's right. That's all you do. There is no platforming in Space Invaders. But what there was in the Japanese video game industry was a very clear feeling that one of these days, Space Invaders had to run its course, was absolutely going to run out of steam. And then the question is, what do you do next? This is what was on everyone's mind in Japanese arcades in 1979, particularly after that law we talked about on a previous episode was passed. Well, not law, sorry, but the self-regulatory restrictions 
that the uh, Japanese Amusement Association placed on itself in order to self-regulate playing of Space Invader games and young people going into game centers came into effect and kind of killed this fad. Space Invaders was just unlike anything that had ever been seen. But it was also never going to last forever. And so in 1979, the thing that was on everybody's mind is what is going to happen next? So there was a publication in those days, it may still exist, called Weekly Asahi in Japan. And they would do a column that talked about things like video games and whatnot. The whole thing wasn't dedicated to that, but there was a column in there. This uh, publication asked this very question, what is going to come after Space Invaders? And they ran a regular feature for a little while called In Search of the Next Space Invaders. What they did is they went around to various places where people were involved in computers and involved in games and were trying to get input from these locations as to what they thought would be next. And they were not just going to game developers. They were going to people from all parts of society that were admittedly involved with technology and asking that question, what comes next? One of the places that they went was Tokyo University, where they decided to visit the PC club there. Now, we talked a little bit about this in the origin of Japanese computer games. We talked about how the early culture developed in Japan around these computers, and we talked about how university clubs were a very important early source for this, because a lot of these guys, the computers were expensive, a lot of them were imports, a lot of these people couldn't afford the computers, and so they interacted with them not by buying their own computers, but going to places where they could interact with existing computers. One place that they did that was in department stores. We talked about that, where they would go and, and just type in their programs in the display units and do what they could with them until they were chased off or until the store closed and then come back the next day and start all over again. And then another way they did that was joining PC clubs, particularly at the university level. So Tokyo University had a club, and so they went and visited the club there to ask them this question. And then from there, they went to another group called the Theoretical Science Group, which was, again, a bunch of young people that were working with technology. We're asking everyone these questions. What's going to come next? What do you think should be next? What can we do after Space Invaders? It's kind of funny. The answer to that came out of science fiction in the same way that Space Invaders itself came out of science fiction. When Tomohiro Nishikado was creating Space Invaders, the big problem he had, as we've talked about, is what do I use as enemies? Tanks aren't working, airplanes aren't working, people are considered maybe not the best things to be shooting in this time period. And then because Star Wars was coming out, he decided to move to aliens. Even though those aliens were not inspired by Star Wars, the idea of doing aliens was inspired by Star Wars. This group was inspired by Alien, the absolutely classic sci-fi horror movie that had literally just come out at this time, because we're talking about 1979, that's the year Alien came out. And they came up with this idea of a maze and aliens pursuing you through the maze. Because, of course, if you've seen Alien, you remember a lot of the tension in that movie comes from moving through the various ducts and corridors of the Nostromo and trying to track the alien on these uh, motion sensors and they can't see it, but it's coming towards them. The sensor's beeping and, you know, that's where the tension comes from. It's very much a horror movie, unlike the Alien sequels, which tend more towards just straight out action. So they came up with this idea of 
aliens in this maze and your character moving around and your character having to negotiate the maze and dig holes to trap the aliens. They ended up developing that game. There was even an arcade version made. It was also developed on computers, and they named it Hankyo Alien. Uh, Hankyo is a name for old Kyoto, the old capital of Japan, the old imperial capital before the emperor moved to Tokyo. Aliens, because it's the movie Alien, and the main character is a policeman, so he's running around avoiding these creatures and then digging holes to trap them. So now I know what you're thinking. It's like, okay, Alex, well, you talked about Space Invaders. That's not a platformer. Now it sounds like you're talking about a maze game. It sounds like you're talking about something that's practically Pac-Man. What's the deal here, right? And we both talked about both of these games in previous episodes, and we have shown multiple examples of their gameplay and how it affects other various aspects of video game history. So how do they really affect platformers? So Hankyo Alien comes out here at the tail end of 79, and it's a minor hit. I wouldn't say it's a huge hit, but it's definitely a minor hit in Japan. I mean, the United States, who's ever heard of this? Even though some versions of it were released in the United States, that's not where it made its impact. But in Japan, it was a pretty big deal. So then in 1980, the coin-op manufacturer Universal, which has nothing to do, we've talked about this before, it has nothing to do with the movie studio, but it's a Japanese company, Universal. What they decide to do is, since Hankyo Alien's been kind of popular, they want to make their own version of it, but they don't want to do a straight-up clone. So what they do is they take this game, which is in an overhead view, because it's a maze game. It's not just like Pac-Man, but it's, it's a similar idea there. So it's an overhead view navigating this maze, and they decide to flip this whole thing 90 degrees so that instead of looking down on the playfield from above, you're looking at the playfield from the side. This allows them to have bigger, more interestingly animated characters, but it also creates a limitation in the playfield because, of course, one of the nice things about this overhead view is you've got all this real estate on the screen that you can move your character around in. And at this time, games are still primarily single screen, so the emphasis really is on figuring out how can I use this real estate of this single screen to best advantage to maximize gameplay within this space, because it's all you've got is this one screen. And not that high resolution either. Exactly. Not at high resolution. You're talking about 320 by 200 or something approximately that, give or take. I know a lot of younger gamers now cannot even fathom how small that is. Right. I mean, in our day, way back in our day, you know, it was kind of 800 by 600 was considered out of sight, and then a lot of things were 640 by 480, which is basically what a standard CRT television can output, because that's how many pixels there are in a standard television. And we considered HD to be 1024 by 768. Exactly. But this is even prior to that, because during this period of time, because things were so graphics intensive, they would actually have what they could actually do. So on a standard CRT, you could do 640 by 480, but because the processors couldn't necessarily handle generating all those graphics, they cut that in half to cut down on memory and cut down on uh, cycles and everything. So you were talking 320, you know, half a 640, but then they'd even cut off the vertical even more. It, it wasn't 240, it was usually 220 or 200 just because of the way they were working with it. So yeah, very low resolution, very little real estate. So of course you didn't do much from a side view when you're only on a single screen. They take this game and they put it on its side, but you can't just have him on a single level or a single layer in a side view because you just don't have the real estate to make that interesting. 
You're not going to have a scrolling game in a side view at this period of time. So how do you solve that problem? You make the area very vertical. So you have platforms all over the screen, and then you have ladders connecting these platforms so that you're able to move in a vertical space just as much as you're moving from a side-to-side space, and therefore you can have an interesting level. And so that's what this game that they did, Space Panic, really was. It was taking Ankyo Alien and just flipping the perspective 90 degrees, flipping it up like a diorama flipped on its side, and then creating vertical space by having platforms. The gameplay is essentially identical to Hankyo Alien. There's some wrinkles in it, but it's basically the same thing. You're moving around, avoiding creatures, and digging holes to trap them. It's just that instead of being done on this overhead view, it is being done in this side view. So now we have platforms. There's no jumping. This isn't a jumping game. Like I said, the platforms come first. Even though today platformers are very defined by jumping, this is why it's the platform genre and not the character jumping genre. <laughs> it's because the platforms came first. So that's Space Panic. It was a bigger hit than Hankyo Alien, though I would still say a minor hit. But now we've got this idea of platforming action. So, of course, that brings us to the game that really causes platforming to break out and the game that forever causes platforming and jumping to be associated with each other, and that's Nintendo's Donkey Kong. We've told this story before, and in fact, a lot of the stories that we're going to tell today are stories we've told before. We're doing, what, is this episode 110? Where are we? I don't even know anymore. 111. 111. This one goes to 11. It does. (laughs) We're on episode 111. At this point, there are still discrete stories that we haven't told and discrete stories that we will tell in the future. But it becomes harder and harder to get discrete stories. So a lot of what we do anymore is taking stories we've already told, but string them together in a different way so that we're revealing the big picture in a different way. If it hasn't become apparent, the video game industry is really interconnected in a myriad of different ways. So many different aspects of it, even if it seems minor, has great effects across the entire industry affects different genres, affects different ways of thinking, affects just how the entire thing develops. Really, just by looking at platformers, we get to have a better understanding and a better appreciation of just how influential these early games, Space Invaders, Hankyo Aliens, so on and so forth, really changed the industry. Exactly. So a lot of the facts will be stuff we've covered before, but we're going to string them together in a different way to show this information. We've talked about Donkey Kong before. We've talked about a few different things about it. We've talked about how Nintendo had a shooting game, a Space Invaders derivative, that they hoped would be their first success in the United States, how that didn't work out for a variety of reasons, and now they needed a game fast. So they basically asked anybody who was not currently working on a game to submit game ideas because they needed something in a hurry. This is what gave the young Shigeru Miyamoto, who up to that point had only done cabinet art, case design, possibly a little in-game pixel art, but design stuff, which we've talked about this before in Japan, a designer is an artist, a game designer is not the person creating the game, that's a planner. The artist is the designer. It's just different terminology there. So he'd been doing design work, but he'd never had an opportunity to submit game ideas. But this gave him the opportunity because everybody was given a chance. And he was very into manga. 
He was very into kind of the multi-act structure, the four-act structure of a manga page across panels. So he submitted an idea based on the existing Popeye license that Nintendo had that kind of involved a four-act structure moving between these different stages and the typical Popeye scenario of Pluto kidnaps olive oil, help, Popeye, help, Popeye comes along, da-da-da-da-da-da, and uh, does his thing. So that's what he proposed, and that proposal was accepted. Now, we actually know a little more now than we did the last time we talked about Donkey Kong. So there'll actually be a little bit of new information here, because the video game historian, that's what he calls himself, Norm Caruso, the wonderful video game historian who does YouTube videos, went to the Federal Court Repository in Lee's Summit, Missouri, where the federal court records for New York State are kept, and pulled out the Universal v. Nintendo case, the famous case where Universal claimed that Donkey Kong infringed on the rights of Universal with King Kong. Turned out they didn't have those rights. Long story, we talk about it elsewhere. Not important now. The original case, unfortunately, has been destroyed, but the appellate case still exists, and so there's an appendix to that that has some of the deposition material, some of the evidentiary material from the trial case, and he went in and scanned all of that and has been generous in in sharing with some of us that uh, have similar interests in the research. So we knew that it started as a Popeye game, and in fact, the reason it takes place in a construction zone, and we talked about this before, is they actually referenced a specific Popeye cartoon that took place on a skyscraper being built with girders everywhere and all of that. We knew that they had stopped using Popeye, but we didn't know why, and we know this now. We know this now thanks to these deposition materials. So this is actually new, even if you've listened to our other episodes. They created it with Popeye and Bluto and olive oil, and instead of the hammers, they had the spinach to supercharge them and all of this. You have to remember, this is still a time period when the hardware is very primitive, where animation is very difficult to do. It's very intensive to do this with big sprites. And you also have to remember that it has to fit within the pre-existing confines of the radar scope hardware, which wasn't hardware that was necessarily tailored to doing characters and doing a platform game. There's a reason that the early games mostly involved spaceships or pizza-looking things with a single slice removed, like Pac-Man. And that's because there was very little to animate. We've talked before about how difficult it is to animate a human. This is just the period when the technology is starting to get good enough to do it. But the radar scope hardware is a bit constrained by the fact that it really wasn't made for that kind of thing. So what they found is it just technically didn't work. They could not make a Popeye that looked good that looked on model, that animated well. I mean, you know how short and squat Mario is in Donkey Kong. It's tiny Mario. Or pretty much anything of the era. Anytime you had Mario, he was short and squat. Exactly. So that wasn't going to work. And so it was purely for technical reasons. There was speculation that they thought they had the license and then the license fell through and all of this. But no, it it really was down to technical limitations. They prototyped it. There's sketches Uh, which is uh, fantastic in these court materials of what the game looked like with Popeye characters in it. Actual design documents from Nintendo that were included as evidence in the case. They had that all up and it wasn't a licensing problem. After all, they'd already done a Popeye game in Watch and they did a Popeye uh, platforming game in very next year, 1982. It really was just down to technical reasons. They couldn't make these characters look right with the hardware that they had to work with. 
So, of course, that's how Mario gets done. We won't go into the whole creation of Mario. We've done that before, and it's not important to the platforming aspect other than the fact that he becomes a very popular character. The one thing we will say again, and we did talk about this before, is it started out very much in the space panic mode. You have this construction site, you have these girders. Later on, they had other conveyances, but the first level was just girders and and ladders. So you have ladders, you can move up and down ladders. They do add the wrinkle of power-ups. It's kind of funny. Uh, Pac-Man, of course, came first and had power-ups, the so-called power pellets that allowed you to eat the ghosts, which were directly inspired by Popeye and Spinach because Tori Watani was very much into cartoons of that era, both Japanese and Western cartoons of that era, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. And so he took that idea of the power-up from Popeye. Popeye is really kind of, in a way, the origin of all video game power-ups. So the power-ups in Mario came from the exact same place, because there's the hammers. They made Mario a carpenter. Originally, it was spinach that powered him up, because that's just how Popeye works. And then when it was a carpenter now, uh, Mario, they turned them into hammers and had him whack things. So he had the hammers, he had the ladders, but there was no jumping at the beginning of the game, because that just kind of wasn't something people thought of. Because I've said this before in other episodes, it's like jumping. Okay, jumping is something humans can do. Jumping is something that humans occasionally do have to do to hop over like a ditch or jump from rooftop to rooftop or something. It is something that humans do, but it's not one of the primary things humans do. I know I can say it for myself, and I think I can safely say it for you too, Jeff, that throughout the course of our daily lives, we do not really jump on a daily, bi-daily, even probably weekly basis. Outside of, say, exercising or trying to avoid stepping on the cat, no. Right, which is more of a reflex kind of thing than actually being like, yeah, I'm going to hop from place to place. Let us now prance. Right, I mean, it's not something humans do, but they were having problems balancing the game. They were having problems making the game fun. They had the ladders, they had the barrels. You know, we've told this story before. It's a side view game, so there is no three-dimensional space. It's only moving backwards and forwards. You can't move left and right. So Miyamoto just started thinking to himself, if I were in a narrow hallway, a real-world space where you can't move left or right, and there was a barrel improbably coming towards me, what would I do? What would my reflex action be? Hop. He answered his own question. Yeah, I'd jump. I'd jump over the darn thing. They decided that that was the missing element. Miyamoto decided that was the missing element. Barrel's coming for me. I jump. We have the input that we need on this hardware. We're constrained by the hardware, but we have the input capability we need to add that in. Jump. And that is the moment in Donkey Kong that jumping and platforms become inextricably linked forever. The barrel's coming right for you. It's on fire. Press A. Yeah, exactly. And it makes sense within that 2D concept. It's kind of funny. We'll get to 3D games a little later on. It's kind of funny that it's persisted in 3D, right? Yeah. Because when you get into a 3D world, that is not something you need to do in your daily experience. But if we lived in a flat 2D world, I mean, we would have to jump more just to not get killed. It makes sense that jumping would become linked to platforming just because you have this flat, side view plane and there's there's nowhere to go so space panic kind of got things started which itself was derived from the maze gameplay of Hankyo alien donkey kong comes along and just really 
gives us the classic idea of what platforming is. There are platforms still, sometimes still connected by ladders. There are obstacles. There are enemies. And if something's coming right for you, you jump. There are occasional power-ups, again, inspired by Popeye. And those power-ups are going to allow you to turn the tables temporarily, destroy your enemies in different ways. It's all there. It's still single screen, multi-stage, but single screen. It's kind of all there. There's lots of refinements that happen, lots of changes, but the core gameplay is right there. Donkey Kong establishes the platformer. Donkey Kong's hugely popular, but platformers don't immediately take over. And I think, again, part of the reason for this is they are really hard to make. The animation is intense. You need real character design, and you have to make sure all those body parts move together well. We have talked about how Mario's character design was specific to the needs of animating a character on the limited hardware. Talked about that in other episodes. So there were some action games with some running and some jumping that followed immediately after in the arcade, uh, like Jungle Hunt, but they weren't really platformers because they didn't have that platforming element, multiple levels and verticality and all that. They had running and jumping and avoiding, but not necessarily platforming. Of course, in the home, it was even worse because you're talking about systems like the Atari VCS and the Intellivision which are even more rudimentary than what's going on in the arcade. And if it's a struggle to do convincing, colorful, fluid animation on a piece of coin-operated hardware, which can cost many, many hundreds of dollars, imagine what it's like trying to do the same thing on the very primitive home systems of the day. There was one game that managed to break through that and create a platforming experience in the home, and it became the biggest game of the 1982 holiday season. Second biggest game overall, because Pac-Man was released in the spring and, and did more numbers, but the biggest game of the holiday season, and that was the game Pitfall. Ah, good old Pitfall. I remember dying a lot to that one on the Commodore 64. Yep. There isn't a lot of through line from Pitfall to the platform games that follow it in terms of design sensibilities, just because Pitfall hit at the end of 1982. And as regular listeners know, something started happening at the end of that year that kind of wiped out everything. Nah. If you want to know more about that, we have five bajillion other episodes. But the point is, because of that, I don't think it exhibited much of a design influence because the design influence continued to be out of Japan. But what I think Pitfall showed is that the platforming genre could be huge in the home. It could be the absolute biggest thing in the home. Platformers were always bigger in the home, I think, than in the arcades. There have been arcade platformers. Obviously, Donkey Kong was a big hit. But moving forward from that, there have been arcade platformers, and some of them have been successful. But I think they're really more suited to the home because... The arcade prides itself on two things, technical bells and whistles, cutting-edge graphics, cutting-edge sound, difficulty, and punishing brutality and killing you off so you have to keep inserting more quarters. So that lends itself to experiences that are faster and more linear, kind of almost like a theme park ride that lasts anywhere from five seconds to five minutes, depending on how good you are at the game. But what the platformer ends up being really good at 
is exploration, depth of world, taking your time, probing different areas of the map, it really lends itself to a console experience. Because the action element works much better with things like spaceships or tanks and whatnot that are just zooming through a level, which is why you see that kind of thing. And when you get games with human characters in the arcades, it tends to be things like just beating people up, moving in a straight line, beating people up, or one-on-one fighting games. Things that, again, are focusing on the visceral action element of playing a game. Whereas a platformer can be more thoughtful, and it can be more exploratory, and even if there's lots of action in it, there's this idea that you're going through a variety of worlds, experiencing a variety of things, fighting a variety of enemies. And that really goes back to Pitfall. I think that's where the influence of Pitfall is, and it's why I bring all of this up at this juncture. If Ankyo Alien and all of that was based on Alien, and then Donkey Kong was based on Popeye, by far, and I'm not exaggerating, by far, the most important cinematic influence on platformers, bar none, is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark, really? Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones. Not just all of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but mostly that very first sequence in the temple where he goes through all the booby traps and then places the idol on the pedestal and then the whole place starts going down and stuff's going after him. Because there's jumping, there's rocks chasing after you, there's darts flying out. It's action-packed and it's this kind of action where it's like it's all close shaves. We've talked about this before because Indiana Jones really is very influential across video games generally. We've talked before how Indiana Jones is not a Superman. Indiana Jones is the guy that reaches for the ledge and just barely catches it, and then he slips a little bit, and then he catches himself and barely pulls himself up. And then he barely gets the hat back before it gets crushed by something. You know, that's who Indiana Jones is. He's not Superman. He's everyman, sort of. I can't do what he does. Had some pretty good uh, upper body strength there. Every man with very good upper body strength, but... He feels like a human being. It feels like it hurts. It feels like he's barely making it. That's just great for tension in a video game, too. I mean, the idea is you want to create a jump, for instance, that is narrow enough that you can make it, but is just wide enough that you feel like if you don't hit it right, you're going to fall in the pit. It's that same idea of almost making it that really informs what makes platforming work. And so that's why that sequence in Indiana Jones is so important, because it has him running, it has him jumping, and it has him narrowly avoiding things. It's a video game, and, you know, I don't think it's an accident that Steven Spielberg, this great blockbuster creator, was also a humongous video game fan. I'm not saying he borrowed from video games, because when he was creating these early action movies, video games didn't do anything like that. But I'm just saying, because he likes those kind of action games, there's a sensibility that both Spielberg and video game creators have and identify with and feed off of each other on. David Crane, the creator of Pitfall, was one of the most technically accomplished and one of the most artistically accomplished designers on the Atari VCS. He really knew how to get the most out of the hardware, but he was also a very, very good artist, which was not necessarily the case with a lot of these early guys during this day when one person was doing everything and you didn't have professional artists doing your art for you. He was very good at animation, and he came up with a running man, which was a remarkable thing to get going on the VCS, because remember, this is a system that was made to play Pong and Tank. It has sprites, but those sprites are small and very static, and there's only five of them. 
So to create a running man, you only have five sprites to work with, and that's not counting the fact that you need other objects on the screen, and you need to use clever tricks to multiply and reuse those sprites in such a way that you get enough individual blobs to form a man, and then you have to figure out how to program that so that they're moving around in a vaguely realistic fashion. That's a lot for the VCS to do. You know, Crane had been working on the VCS since 1977, and he only figured out this running man in, like, late 81 or early 82. So even somebody as brilliant as he is at this stuff, (laughs) that's something you couldn't just do right out of the gate. But he figured out how to do a running man. So he's like, well, I've got a running man. What do I do? Well, I put him on a path so he can run. Okay, I've got a path. What do I do now? Well, I need a setting. Well, a jungle kind of looks good, so we'll put him in a jungle. Okay, he's in a jungle. Well, Indiana Jones is cool. Just come out in 81. So he's treasure hunting in a jungle. And it's like, okay, well, what kind of things go on in jungles? Well, there's vines swinging like in Tarzan. There's these old Heckle Jekyll cartoons or comic strips, characters Heckle and Jekyll. And he remembered one where they were running across alligators and the alligators were snapping at him and just missing as they were running across him. And he's like, well, so that's going on. And it's like, yeah, jungle, alligators, vines, other nasty things, Indiana Jones, treasure hunting. Okay, that's a game with a man that works. All right, well, how do I do this? Because the VCS has 128 bytes of memory and our cartridges have 4K of RAM. How do I create a world for him? The time-honored way. It's like, okay, I'll do a random number generator, but with a fixed seed, which means that since you're using the same seed every time, it's not actually random. You get the same thing every time you play. But because you're generating the world through a random number generator, they're essentially ones and zeros, instead of by actually handcrafting the world, it all fits within a cartridge. So he creates this expansive world that you go through and collect treasures within a time limit. And there's some other strategy and stuff, like there's a main level of the jungle, and then there's the caves. And the jungle, you go one screen at a time, and the underground area actually skips screens. So you can go faster underground, and that's part of the strategy of figuring out how to get to all the treasures and the time limit. This game is kind of the first platformer that's like, okay, we've got the action already. We've got our Donkey Kongs. We've got our running. We've got our jumping. Now let's open that up. Let's broaden that, and let's make something that's very interesting on console, which is exploring a larger world, collecting things, and overcoming various different kinds of obstacles as we get there. So even though the design of Pitfall is kind of a dead end, and that's only because the industry crashed, not because it wasn't worthy of imitation, that sensibility of why platformers work on consoles, I think very much comes from Pitfall. And I think it's because of Pitfall, almost, though not quite as much as Super Mario Brothers, that the idea of platforming and consoles are so deeply tied together and why it really flourishes there as a genre much more than it does in the uh, arcade. Pitfall comes out in 1982. It's a massive hit. Most sites say over 4 million. I think it was actually, uh, going back and look at the numbers, about 3.5 million. The over 4 million was actually including sales of its sequel, Pitfall 2 The Lost Caverns. Still, 3.5 million in that time period was phenomenal. That made it pretty much, as near as I can remember, as near as I can tell, that made it by far the best-selling original game ever created on the VCS, i.e. not an arcade adaptation. Games like Donkey Kong and Space Invaders and Asteroids sold more, 
but those were massive arcade hits brought into the home. This was by far the best-selling original game on the hardware. And it's a massive hit, and it's the beginning, really, even though it's not the first platform game on consoles, it's really the beginning of the love affair of consoles and platformers. So really, that's the genesis and the foundation set up for the entire platforming genre. How does it really evolve from that point forward so that we get to where we are today with things like Shovel Knight and Celeste? Right. So there are two kind of branching paths that happen at this point, and that's very much because you have the crash. So you have Pitfall on the VCS, and then the American market falls apart. At this point, you have a Japanese market that is still very console-focused because the Famicom's about to be released. And then you have a British market that is very cheap PC-focused. Personal computer-focused, I mean. I don't mean IBM PCs particularly on the ZX Spectrum, uh, and then a little later also on the Commodore 64. Both of these are action markets, unlike the American computer game industry, which develops in this time period, which is a more cerebral market. And so they both take platforming, but run with it in slightly different directions. And we've talked about this before, too. We did an episode on the British arcade adventure. Britain was particularly influenced by... Minor 2049er, which was one of the very few action platformers that appeared on American computer systems before the crash kind of made that whole thing vanish. Minor 2049er, as we said before, was basically Bill Hogue, the designer of that, loved Pac-Man, loved Donkey Kong, and basically said to himself, what happens if I smush these two things together? So in Minor 2049er, The action takes place in a very Donkey Kong-esque kind of side view, platforming kind of space. But the goal of the game, rather than getting from point A to point B, is to literally traverse every portion of the screen, single screen levels, every portion of that screen. And as you move over the levels, you know, the the hollowed out areas get filled in to mark your progress. And that's the Pac-Man influence, because, of course, to clear a Pac-Man maze, you have to collect all the pellets, and to collect all the pellets, you have to literally traverse the entire maze. So it's platforming action with that added need to cover the entire level. Minor 2049er makes its way to Britain. It has a great influence on Matthew Smith, who we've talked about, and so he kind of does his own take on this manic miner which goes back to more of a get from point A to point B kind of thing, but also includes the idea of you have to collect things in the level on the way. There's still single screen, but you're having to do a little maneuvering around the level, more like Minor 2049er in that sense than Donkey Kong, which is a linear move, even if sometimes you have to zig and zag to avoid things. From there, he does the sequel Jet Set Willy, which goes even more into the item collection and exploration feel, even than Manic Miner does. So now you're going through a multi-screen play field, and you're just collecting things while avoiding obstacles and, of course, jumping and whatnot because it's a platformer. So you get this whole arcade adventure track in Britain, and we won't go into detail on that just because we really did a whole episode on that. And it doesn't make sense to go through that whole episode again. I would encourage you to check it out for more information. But just to know that you have this track in Britain where you have platforming, but this platforming is often combined with item collection and even sometimes some light puzzle solving as you move through the game. Both side-scrolling games like Jet Set Willy and then the groundbreaking isometric games like Night Lore 
that are pioneered by Ultimate Play the Game, the company that essentially eventually becomes rare, the Stamper Brothers. So that's one track. In Japan, you have Nintendo building on the Donkey Kong legacy with the Popeye game, with the Mario Brothers game, which we're not going to go into depth on in this episode. We've done so in other episodes. So they're building that legacy, and those are their most successful games. So when they're creating the Famicom, when Masuki Uemura is developing the Famicom with his team at Japan, their primary goal is to create a system that can play a flawless version of Donkey Kong. Now, they're not stopping there. It's not like the VCS, which was meant to play Pong and Tank, and then if you wanted to do something more complex than that, you have to get really creative. They're creating something that can do scrolling and can do more advanced things than just play Donkey Kong. That was the holy grail of making sure it could at least do that because that was Nintendo's biggest hit. Nintendo was a platforming game company. So the Famicom hardware was very well suited to doing character-based games as a result of that. We've talked about this before. When it came time to do Super Mario Brothers, the Famicom had been a cartridge system. Cartridges are expensive. Cartridges are memory limited. Again, just because of their expense. So Nintendo was moving to the Famicom Disk System, which never came out in the United States, but in Japan was really meant to replace cartridges. Nintendo was going to stop doing cartridges, phase them out entirely, and go to this magnetic disc media. They didn't for a few reasons. First, they discovered copy the floppy is a very popular pastime. It's, it's easier to pirate. There were also advances in cartridges that even those cartridges were still expensive. There were advances that made it so that you could get just enough memory on them. The first one meg cartridges came out. So it's like, okay, this is still kind of expensive, but you can get enough on there to make it all economical. You can even put extra chips on there to create better functionality, either in video or sound. Case in point. Absolutely. Castlevania 3 had some fantastic sound, I think, was just a special chip inside of the Famicom. Exactly. On the graphical side, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out had a a special chip that made all of those crazy big boxers possible. So, absolutely. So they decided to stick with that instead of going to this more easily pirated and less durable disc hardware. But at the time, they really thought they were going to stop. And so Miyamoto and Tezuka decided that they were going to create one final cartridge game that was a culmination of all they had learned up to that point doing video game design. It was going to be what they called athletic games. They called platformers at that time athletic games because there's running and jumping and all of that. They were going to create an athletic game that was based to a degree, it's not a one-for-one, but based to a degree on Pac-Land by Namco, which had come out just in 1984, that kind of set the standard in the arcade for smooth scrolling well-animated, run-and-jump, obstacle-avoidance kind of gameplay. Combine that with all they'd learned on doing Donkey Kong and Mario Brothers, and of course the Mario character is going to come back and just create this giant world with all of these different kinds of levels to go through, representing all the things they learned how to do. There'd be land, there'd be sea, there'd be air. Originally there were going to be shooting stages, basically shoot 'em up stages, not just platforming run-and-jump stages. That's what they were going to do in the sky. They reused those cloud animations and whatnot to do the secret areas where you climb the vine and just collect coins, but those were actually going to be stages where you rode a cloud and shot at things. 
or maybe rode a rocket ship. There were varying ideas. The grand culmination of everything. We've gone into this before, but of course it was going to be scrolling levels, big levels, and they had the big Mario character, but they didn't think the bigger Mario character worked very well or made much of an impact just on his own, so they decided to do the he'll start small and then get big, which was just a huge breakthrough in in how those games worked. And so you have Super Mario Brothers that just comes together out of this desire to do the most amazing thing they've ever done and push the hardware to its limits and maximize resources. They literally used every last bit that they had on the cartridge. They had to do a lot of reusing as graphics. If you look closely, you'll notice that the clouds and the bushes are the exact same sprite, just a different color. And placed differently. Yes, and obviously placed differently, but they had to use every trip in the book to make this work. They wanted to just go all out. And of course, they created the new standard by doing so. So they were partially inspired by Pac-Lan. They were partially inspired by their own previous work on games like Donkey Kong and Mario Brothers. And then with some of the added twists like the power-ups, and they just make what is kind of the perfect template for a run-and-jump platforming action game. And, of course, it's hugely popular, it sets the tone, and it's the reason as much as anything that platforming becomes such a huge thing on the NES. Going to that point a little more, it's like, why did platforming become a huge thing? I mean, why that genre? I can't say that I have a definitive answer, but there are a few things I can think of that make it work. Like I said, for one thing, there's this idea that if you're on foot, if you're a character just walking around, you can take your time and explore environments more. Now, obviously, many platformers go very fast. But if you think about, like, shoot 'em ups in a spaceship, it's like a spaceship's just going to be zooming, zooming, zooming. It doesn't feel like you have time necessarily to deviate and explore. Not that there haven't been some games like that where there is some exploration, but it just feels like the shoot 'em up games at the time, which were largely in the arcade, were really focused on you're going as fast as you can and you're just blowing things up, blowing things up, blowing things up. No time to look over here, no time to look over there. It's just zombies coming right for you, press A. The other thing is that in those kind of fast action games as well, the Nintendo Entertainment System was really not good at doing shoot 'em ups because you could only have so many objects, so many sprites on the screen before the Nintendo slowed all the way down. And this has happened multiple times, even in Nintendo's in-house games. Take The Legend of Zelda, when you have too many dark nuts on the screen, and then you have fireballs throwing right for you. That will slow down. Oh, yeah. And cause PTSD and everyone who ever tried to navigate that. Yes. No, it's, it's very true. So it feels like with platformers, you can break things up. It's not necessarily at such a breakneck speed. They will become more breakneck. We'll get there. But I'm talking in the NES era. It feels like something where you can take your time a little bit. You can stop. You can plot out a jump. You can choose to go this path instead of that path. It just feels like because it allows the player to move at their own pace rather than necessarily always forced scrolling and because it invites there to be fewer objects or obstacles on the screen at the same time while still providing a decent level of challenge because of all the jumping and stuff you have to do. It just feels like it was particularly well suited to that platform in a way that something like a shoot 'em up wasn't. And this is as much as anything, I think, why the platformer just becomes such an important thing. 
And of course, you get the platformer mixed with other things because the other thing that you really get on the NES is you get a lot of platform shooters. We won't go into huge detail on that, but those are platformers too. It's just that you're taking that fast platforming action and you're combining it with that shoot 'em up action to make something new. One thing that comes to mind in my brain is Russian Attack. Absolutely. Russian Attack by Konami uh, was one of the very early ones to do that. Of course, I think the quintessential series on the NES would have been Mega Man. Mega Man was a game that really was the first platform shooter, I think, that put a lot of care into the flow of the game. I mean, something like Shovel Knight, for instance. You were talking about how do we get to Shovel Knight. I think something like Shovel Knight, which is also influenced by Super Mario Brothers and just about anything that came out in that time period, really happens as much as anything because of Mega Man. I'm not saying that the Shovel Knight people themselves were necessarily influenced more by Mega Man than anything else, though I think they were influenced by it some. But the real breakthrough about Mega Man that I just want to take a brief moment to talk about is that the creator of the original Mega Man, Akira Kitamura, was really inspired to make the game because he was frustrated with the few platform shooters that had come out before. He felt that there was not a lot of care given to the way enemies came at you and the way enemy waves came at you. And I think a lot of this just comes out of the fact that you had an arcade, a coin-op mentality. Because the coin-op mentality, quite frankly, was to kill you as fast as possible. I mean, try to make it feel like improvement was in reach, but really just kill you as fast as possible, which means it's all about sending wave after wave after wave of stuff. And maybe you start with smaller waves with simpler enemies and then go to bigger waves with more complex enemies. But really, it's just about throwing everything onto the screen that they can at once to just get you. Kitamura did not think that that was the best way to do a platform shooter, one of these console games where the emphasis is on navigating and exploring through long levels rather than killing you after 90 seconds to make sure that you're spending enough quarters on the game. You've already bought your game. And so he thought that the key element that was missing from earlier games was enemy placement. He really felt that these early games just placed enemies willy-nilly and didn't think about how the waves should come at you in a way that makes the difficulty ramp up slowly, that makes the challenges have variety, and just guides you through a stage in a way that is more pleasing, even at the same time that it's challenging. So he played a lot of existing games while he was thinking up uh, his game Rockman. He calls it Rockman, the, the American branch, changed the name to Mega Man. So he paid attention to pacing and flow. He gave himself rules on how enemy waves would work. Your first wave might be a single weak enemy that appears in a group of three or four, and you don't mix them up to kind of introduce you to the level, introduce you to the mechanics. And then you would start using terrain to vary the way they come at you. So you'd start on maybe a pretty basic terrain and then with these simple enemies and waves. But then you'd get the terrain more complicated, which makes the enemies, even though they're the same enemies, it makes the placement kind of more fraught and more interesting and more challenging. And then move from there to larger, more complicated, more difficult enemies and then throw terrain on top of that kind of gradually building this out. 
And he thought, if I can produce really interesting waves and then combine it with really precise control, then I think I've got something here. I think this thing, the platform shooter, is going to have a future. So he's not the first one to do a platform shooter. The first Mega Man wasn't even particularly successful. It was kind of a failure, only because the team kind of begged to do a second one that Capcom was finally like, well, oh, fine. As long as you finish this other stuff, you can do another Mega Man, that they were able to do a Mega Man 2. And Mega Man 2 is the one where they really figured out the formula and is the game that people still usually consider to be the absolute pinnacle of the Mega Man series, even after all the bazillion games that came out afterwards. You've got that going on. You've got arcade adventures going on in Europe. You've got these kind of platforming games going on in Japan, both the Mario with the emphasis on running and jumping and the Mega Man style or the Castlevania style where the emphasis is on running and jumping and shooting slash whipping slash whatever else. Then you've got a third school that is going on in the United States on computer platforms. So computers are not really big platforms for action games in the United States. We talked about this, the crash kind of burned that side of it out. The computers that tended to persist after that, after the home computer wars, tended to be slightly more expensive machines, catered to an older crowd. That crowd was more techie, more cerebral. They liked strategy games, simulation games, not necessarily doing action games like the kids were. But there were occasionally important action games that came out on PC. Certainly one of the most important, probably the most important action game ever to come out on PC was Jordan Mechner's Prince of Persia. That's one you're familiar with, isn't it? I'm familiar with the more recent titles of it, Sands of Time. I never actually played the original one. Oh, fair enough. We've talked about Jordan Mechner. We talked about him in the context of Broderbund. So again, some of this is repeat. But Jordan Mechner was very, very interested in story. He actually really wanted to be a screenwriter. That was his real love. And he was very interested in animation techniques. His first game, Karateka, which was a one-on-one fighting game, not like a Street Fighter, it was a beat-em-up, but where you're facing a single enemy at a time. It wasn't a platformer, but it had this smooth animation because he was doing experimenting with rotoscoping. He really wanted to push the smooth animation in that game. But with Prince of Persia, he wanted to take that a step further. He chose this Arabian Nights setting because at that time there really hadn't been anything done in that setting. This is a couple of years before Aladdin, for instance, really popularized that kind of thing. Because he actually started working on this game in the mid-80s. It went on for a very long time before it was finally released in 1989. So he chose that setting, and he wanted something that was more swashbuckly and something that was a little more action-y. And so he drew from that exact same font that David Crane did. He drew from Indiana Jones. He was, again, inspired by Indiana Jones and the way he takes a leap across the pit in that first uh, sequence in the movie, and he kind of just barely grabs the ledge and then climbs up. He wanted to have that same feel of vulnerability, that same feel of danger, and so he created a game that was primarily a platformer, but with really fluid animation that was rotoscoped. By rotoscoping, I mean that he filmed an actual person and then drew the animation over the person so that that makes the animation flow much more realistically because you're actually pulling your frames from real human movement 
instead of trying to do the limited animating capability you could do back then. You don't need to rotoscope anymore to do realistic animation because you can use a combination of very complex muscular and skeletal models that are created in programs with motion capture, which is different from rotoscoping in that with rotoscoping, you're filming the person and then drawing, literally drawing frames over top, whereas, of course, with motion capture, your frames of animation, there's no middleman of doing the drawing. Your frames of animation come directly from what your subject's doing. But back in the day, rotoscoping was the way that you got really good animation on limited hardware. And so it has really smooth animation. It has these leaps. And then he wants it to be a little action-y, too, so he's got the sword fighting in it as well. So it's got that action element. Prince of Persia is usually considered today to be the first example of what is often called, and which I personally like, to call the cinematic platformer. So what's different between a cinematic platformer and something like Mario or something like an arcade adventure? A cinematic platformer has a few things going on. First of all, there is an emphasis on the character and the conception of the character and the fluidity of the character, the realism of the character's actions. I'm not saying that the character necessarily has to have a big backstory or there's a big plot behind it, but something like Mario, even though he feels nice when you run and jump and whatnot, he's not meant to be realistic. His arms chug along super fast as you're running. You've got this parabolic arc to his jump that really doesn't follow what an actual human does. You can even alter his jump course in midair a little bit, which completely destroys the laws of physics. Or something, uh, and we'll talk about this in more detail, but something like Sonic the Hedgehog, which is anthropomorphized and is meant to go as fast as possible. You're not really thinking about what a person can actually do. You're just thinking about how you can make the gameplay the most fun. So cinematic platformer really focuses more on purpose of motion and purpose of movement. It focuses more on having a sense of realistic setting, often drawn from a movie-style genre, which doesn't mean that it has to take place in a realistic place, but just the idea that you're in an Arabian setting or, say, you're in the jungle going after Drake's fortune or you're a god strutting through ancient Greek cities, or you're a treasure hunter going into tombs. All of these concepts draw from the same well of Prince of Persia, of this idea that you're rooted in a real time and place and setting, unlike something like Mario or Sonic, that feels very much more abstract and very much more fanciful. You're focusing on real movement. You're focusing on dramatic story. Oftentimes, you're throwing in some combat to break up your plane running and jumping. In Prince of Persia, it's sword fighting. In other games, it's other forms of combat. But this game is just so important because it really sets the stage for things like Tomb Raider and Uncharted and God of War. Any game that takes place in this hyper-realized but still recognizable kind of world space with the great animation focus on character, and the focus on mingling action with just-in-time platforming, where instead of just jumping from platform to platform, you're often grabbing the ledge and pulling yourself up and all of that kind of thing. That's kind of the third track that you have at the end of the 8-bit era. You have the Nintendo style, which is this uh, Mario running, jumping, power-ups, all of that. You have the British style, 
where there's more emphasis on moving through a single screen at a time rather than scrolling, collecting items, solving puzzles as you move through the world, arcade adventure. And then you have the PC model, which there are fewer games, but huge in influence, which is the cinematic platformer. There's one other wrinkle that happens in this 2D era. And that's adding the element of speed on top of everything else. That's really something that Sega does. This is where Sega's big influence comes in. And of course, we're talking about Sonic the Hedgehog. Gotta go fast. Exactly. Sega had tried to compete with Mario in the 8-bit era by releasing a Mario-like game called Alex Kidd in Miracle World. Now, I want to be clear, because a lot of people have said this wrong. Alex Kidd was never meant to be Mario. Alex Kidd in Miracle World was supposed to be like Super Mario Brothers. Alex Kidd was not meant to be like Mario. He was not meant to be the face of Sega. He was not meant to be the mascot of Sega. We have direct quotes from people at Sega confirming this, including the creator of Alex Kidd himself has said, no, he was not marketed as a mascot. Maybe if the game had gotten huge, like Super Mario Brothers got huge, maybe then Sega would have done something, but that didn't happen. So they had tried to compete with Mario in the 8-bit era, and it didn't work. Now they're releasing their Sega Genesis in 1989 in the United States. They feel like they need something Mario-esque again. They need something that can go toe-to-toe with Mario and establish Sega as a serious player, particularly in the North American marketplace. So they have a couple of things going on. They're asking their game designers to come up with a Mario killer. They're also asking a wide swath of the employees of the company to come up with a concept that can be successful in the United States. And then on top of that, they're hoping that out of all of this, they will also end up with a mascot character. In Western narratives of this, this often all gets garbled and tossed together into they had this one big contest to have a new mascot to put in a game. It doesn't seem like it was quite that linear. You kind of had these three different things going on. So on the Mario Killer side, you had Yuji Naka, brilliant Sega programmer. He did a port of Ghouls and Ghosts, Capcom's Ghouls and Ghosts, on the Genesis, which incidentally is one of the few platformers that was actually pretty darn popular in an arcade setting, but of course, brutally, brutally difficult. But he did a port of Ghouls and Ghosts for the Genesis that was just astounding in the way he was able to get it to move pretty much as fast as the arcade game moved, because of course, coin-op games are all about fast action. NES games were not about fast action because that was very hard to do with lots of objects on the screen. Genesis is obviously more powerful than NES is. Naka, being a great programmer, manages to just do this brilliant port of Ghouls and Ghosts. After that, he kind of has his pick of projects because he did such a good job on that. And one of the ideas floating around is let's do a Mario killer. And so he takes up that challenge. And we've talked about this before because we talked about Sonic. But really, the thing that appealed to Naka and the thing that he wanted to fix is he liked Mario-style gameplay, Super Mario Brothers-style gameplay. But what he didn't like is that levels took the same amount of time, assuming you don't die, assuming you can make it through the entire level. Levels take essentially the same amount of time, whether you're a novice player that isn't very good 
or a great player who can just blaze through. Now, obviously, there is a difference, and you can see that even in, say, the speedrunning community, which even in non-glitch runs can go very, very fast through a game like Super Mario Brothers. What he's really getting at when he says that is that the screen scrolls at the same rate no matter how good you are. Enemies appear at the same rate no matter how good you are. Yes, if you're not as good, you can take your time. You can hesitate a little more before moving the screen. But everything is constant at a particular level, and there's a limit that you can get to. And he wanted a game that the better you got at it, the faster you could go through it. You know, it's, it's almost the genesis of the idea, no pun intended, of speedrunning <laughs> right here. It's like this is a guy that's like, okay, I've mastered this game. Why can't I just go through it fast? So he was focusing on pure speed. Meanwhile, Naoto Shima, who had been working in the marketing side of things, working with graphic design and stationery and stuff, but had also started contributing to the design of some games, and remember design means art in Japan, has taken up the call for this, let's create a new concept that could be big in the United States. He had been doing art on games. He wanted to move more towards doing planning, doing what we would call game design. Naka was working on this game engine, but didn't necessarily have a concept in place for how to use it yet. So they joined forces. And with Naka's game engine and Oshima leading the design, though Naka very much contributing to the design as well, they came up with a game concept of this platform where you're going really fast. Again, Naka, in the interest of speed, wanted to simplify things. Mario has two buttons, B and A. So he wanted a game where you basically just used one button, and that was your jump button. They came up with their proposal for what eventually became Sonic the Hedgehog and had it accepted as this new beat-the-world game focused on America. It's often called a mascot competition. It wasn't actually a mascot competition at this point. It was a game concept competition. But the game concepts, of course, all had to have characters in them, and so characters were submitted as part of this contest, but the contest wasn't for a mascot. The contest was for a big game that could really work in America. So they have this basic concept. They don't really have a character yet. They start with a rabbit, but they have this gameplay element where the rabbit could catch things in its ears and throw things. That was just slowing things down because they wanted to focus on speed. So then they came back to it and looked at it another way and were like, okay, rather than that, let's have a character that can kind of curl up in a ball because uh, they were really taking a lot of influence from pinball. And so you have pinball balls knocking around. That's fast. Let's have a ball character. So they were like, well, armadillos can roll into a ball. So they were like, armadillos can roll into a ball. Hedgehogs can roll into a ball. And then they were like, well, you know, but armadillos, they're just kind of, it's defensive, you know, when they roll into a ball. Hedgehogs, they have spikes. That can be an offensive weapon as well as a, a defensive thing. So, you know, you get Sonic the Hedgehog. The emphasis there was just on that pure speed. So that game just captured imaginations, uh, particularly in the West. It standardized this idea of really fast platforming action, zooming around, and anthropomorphic main characters. We just see so much of that. Just like after Mario Brothers, we saw tons of games where you run around and jump on things to kill them. After Sonic, everybody had to have their flagship anthropomorphic platform character. Oh, yeah, definitely. Sunsoft had Arrow the Acrobat, and Accolade had Bubsy. There were many others even more obscure than that. 
in Britain on computer platforms. You had things like James Pond with a frog character. You know, it was influencing in, in Britain. It was influencing in the United States. It was influencing in Japan, all three places. It became a really big deal. Another thing that was going on at the same time as this was just the constant improvement of animation. Because, of course, as game systems are getting more sophisticated and more powerful, you can do more with them, you can do better animation. So at the same time, Sonic is kind of redefining the speed and attitude of platforming games on 16-bit platforms. The company Virgin Interactive, British company, is redefining the way animation works. Because Virgin put together a team of absolutely incredible programmers and animators. They were one of the first companies to really, in the West, I should say, in Japan this was already going on, but they were one of the first companies in the West to really get a bunch of good animators together. So they created an adaptation of Aladdin for the Sega Genesis. And they worked with the actual Disney animators, and they worked with their own in-house animation team, which had some brilliant people on it, to create a game that just was beautifully animated. All these little touches, like the guards' pants catching on fire and grabbing (laughs) their rear and running around, and Aladdin has such flowing movements and flowing motions. It's brilliant in terms of the way the animation looks. These two elements, Sonic, speed, attitude, quickness, Aladdin, really flowing, brilliant animation in an action platforming game, come together in the final really significant game series of the 16-bit era, and that is Donkey Kong Country. Everyone loved Donkey Kong Country. Absolutely. Now, we don't know everything there is to know about the genesis of that game just because the Stamper Brothers themselves don't really speak ever. But the Stamper Brothers did not create Donkey Kong Country themselves, so we do have some bits and pieces from other people that were on the team. It came out of two things. First of all, the company was experimenting on silicon graphics workstations with doing really advanced 3D graphics. I think probably, even though no one's come out and said it, but probably in anticipation of the coming of the Nintendo 64, which of course was based on silicon graphics hardware. On the other side of things, Nintendo wanted them to create a game that could really rival the animation quality of Aladdin. They wanted something of an Aladdin killer. So the team really loved Super Mario Bros. 3. Basically, they combined these three schools together. So they took kind of the structure and the idea of how Super Mario Bros. 3 worked, you know, with those overworlds, with the different levels and all of that that you travel between. Different themes, different places that would be thematically different whenever you go to them. Exactly. They took the speed of Sonic the Hedgehog because they deliberately made a game, and we've talked about this before, I think, where if you play through it perfectly, you never have to stop. So there are levels with vines. If you never miss a step, if you never miss a frame, every vine will be swinging toward you as soon as you see it. And so you can jump on every vine immediately. You never actually have to wait for a vine as long as you've gone through the level without hesitating or screwing up. There are places where you shoot yourselves out of barrels. If you go through the level again, if you go through the level at a speed where you're not hesitating at all, every barrel, set of barrels will be lined up perfectly when you need to shoot yourself from one to the other. So they took that speed and that flawless execution of Sonic, combined it with the sensibilities of Mario 3, and then 
for their graphical hook, which wasn't specifically based on Aladdin, other than the fact that they were supposed to create something of an Aladdin killer. For the graphical sophistication, they figured out very famously how to do complete 3D polygonal renders on their big Onyx workstations, their Silicon Graphic workstations, and then render that down into a flat 2D graphical look that could run on the Super Nintendo. It was 2D, but it looked like it had depth. It looked like it had 3D effect because the characters and whatnot were actually made out of polygons. It was stunning. No one had ever seen anything like that on a video game system before. It just blew people away. And, you know, this was about the same time that they were starting to do advanced previews of the N64, because this was 94 when it came out, and the N64 was originally supposed to come out in 95 before it was delayed. So when they first showed it at CES, it was still CES at the time, not E3 yet, people assumed as they started showing footage that this was something new that was coming on the N64. And then at the end, they gave them the kicker, coming for Super Nintendo. (laughs) And like the collective jaws of the entire industry hit the floor. I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah, you combine the graphics with just the phenomenal sound that they had too with that game. Certainly one of the masterpieces and crowning achievements of what you could do with the Super Nintendo. Absolutely. And it became the best-selling non-bundled game since Super Mario Bros. 3. Super Mario Bros. 3 had sold about 13 million copies worldwide. Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which was the most successful of the Genesis games, had only sold 6 million, which was still a very good figure, but couldn't reach the heights of Super Mario Bros. 3. And then Donkey Kong Country comes along and sells close to 9 million units on the Super NES. So it didn't quite hit the heights that Super Mario Bros. 3 did, but it was the biggest game to hit since Super Mario Bros. 3. And you can see the pattern here, the way that platformers dominate console platforms. Pitfall was the best-selling original concept on the Atari VCS. Super Mario Bros. 3 was the best-selling game non-bundled. Obviously, Super Mario Brothers sold more, but that was bundled in many markets with the NES, so that helped the sales. Super Mario Brothers 3 is the best-selling game on the Nintendo Entertainment System, and the best, at that point, non-bundled video game best-selling ever. Before that, the best-selling ever had been Pac-Man, which had sold uh, just under 8 million units, and this did 13 million units. Sonic 2... We don't have as complete a numbers for the Genesis as we do for some of these other systems, but Sonic 2 and its 6 million, I'm pretty confident in saying, was the best-selling non-bundled game on the Sega platform. And, of course, the best-selling bundled game was the original Sonic, which was, again, a platformer, just like Super Mario Bros. bundled NES. And then Donkey Kong Country sets the standard on the Super Nintendo. So platformers are far and away the most important genre on console systems. And I do think it's because they have this sense that anything is possible. You can create any kind of character and throw them into any kind of world and you don't feel constrained. If you put a character in a tank, that means something specific. If you make a character a gun-toting commando, that means something specific. If you put them in a spaceship, that means something specific. Platformers have the feel of they can take place anywhere at any time or in any kind of elaborate fantasy space. They give the feel of exploration, they give the feel of nonlinearity at times, and they give the feel of being able to mix and match all sorts of different challenges, I think in a way that felt freeing compared to other video game genres that felt more closely tied 
the specific subject matter. In our next episode, we will show how this pinnacle of 2D game design, this most important element of 2D home game design, the platformer, makes the migration to 3D. And some of the pitfalls involved in that, again, no pun intended, some of the challenges and some of the ways that you try to take these 2D characters and adapt them to 3D worlds, sometimes very successfully, sometimes less successfully. And of course, they also appear alongside brand new characters specifically made for 3D worlds that also just continue to refine our idea of what a platformer can be. That'll be Platformers Part We'll continue to jump to it next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create World, The People and Company That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. 